1: Total Soccer Show and an episode where, unlike Harry Kane, we're going to answer some pertinent questions. That's right. It's a listener question. Spectacle. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who had a birthday this week and he tried to sneak it past us. Taylor Rockwell. Hello, sir. Hello. I did indeed. Uh,
2: It it was not a big one, but it was a good one. Uh, But it's nice to be here with you fine folks.
1: Very nice indeed. We're a pod that celebrates each other, tay So I wanted to Aww. you know, celebrate our successes, celebrate our joy, celebrate the fact that each of us has a birthday once every year. I think that's important to do, right? I
2: think that is correct, unless anyone is born on a leap year, in which case I, I feel sad for them.
1: Ah, oh, bless them. I know, I know some five or six-year-olds out there who aren't really five or six actually, Taylor, <laughs> but that's another story altogether. Uh, we do celebrate each other, and you'll remember how Graham Ruthven, who is here today, was celebrating uh, My Team England when they made the Euros final. Is that right, Graham? Uh, well,
3: I did celebrate
1: something in that final with England. It wasn't England winning it, though, or football coming home. <laughs> Touché, don't know why I brought it up. Um, Do the Scots celebrate birthdays, though? We know how you feel about weddings. Do you just sort uh, of you know, all stand around and commiserate the existential dread of being alive for another year?
3: I'm reluctant to voice my opinions on birthdays because it's just going to be too on-brand. It's just going to be too on-brand. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of birthdays, <sighs> which is bad that? Bad news for my daughter, uh Really? <laughs> My two-year-old
1: daughter.
3: <laughs> but, What's your beef? Don't you like cake, Graham? I I just don't like I, the thing you said about it, it, it happening every year. I'm not really sure what I'm celebrating. Like being alive for another year. Like I don't know. Like each their own. If you want to celebrate your birthday, that's fine. But I I uh, I think this year I'll be driving on my thirtieth birthday. And um, so, yeah.
1: Well, uh, there you have it, listener. Graham, why do we do anything? Rodham is with yeah. us. Uh. <laughs> I
2: will say the, the cake point is a weird one these days because uh, we had some friends very nicely get me a piece of cake and put candles in it. It was like it was like a big enough. It wasn't a piece of cake. It was like a very small cake. So everybody could have a little bit. And then the candles are there, and it's like blow them out. It's like, didn't, aren't we supposed to not do that anymore? Like, haven't, haven't we sort of, as a world, decided maybe blowing on things aggressively right before other people eat them is maybe not the best way to uh, limit germ, uh, the yeah. spreading of germs and things like that. But yeah, it's a weird wrinkles, weird wrinkles for sure in a pandemic birthday. Yeah, we are going to have to
3: work on that, aren't we? Uh-huh. I, I thought that was the primary reason we all got vaccinated was so we could blow out birthday cakes again.
2: <laughs> oh, is is, that, that, is that how they market it? it? Is are you
3: Graham? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, they've tried every other
2: sort of inducement and like method for getting people to sign up and get vaccinated. Maybe that's it. Maybe it is just uh, we'll give you a free birthday cake and away we go.
1: Anyway, uh, let's uh, cake (laughs) chat. We need to introduce one more person here. It's the man who's had the least birthdays out of all of us, I believe. Joseph Lowry. Hello, Joe.
4: Hello. I like that we've learned the only thing that gets Graham actually excited uh, is cheating in soccer so it's not birthdays it's not his own wedding it's uh that's it's people bending the rules a bit eh yep. Yeah,
1: yeah yeah you've you, you pretty much nailed me there yeah that's that's true <laughs> let's dig into this Graham what actually makes you smile is it just uh you know English misery is it is it just your uh provocative dancing on OnlyFans what is it
3: <laughs> yeah yeah my, my provocative dancing on OnlyFans makes a, a lot of people smile apparently <laughs> um I don't. I don't know. Like I, I, I'm coming across as a bit of a misery guts here. Like football kits. You? I like football cut, uh, kits, and uh I don't know. Like um Pixar films. <laughs> I guess. I guess they're quite kind of sickly sweet and stuff like that.
2: <laughs>
1: Still oh. had to be kind of negative, <laughs> even as he was being positive. Oh.
3: Oh.
1: It's a wonderful I'm... dichotomy you have on this show because Taylor, I think you're the most positive man I know, and we've got Graham as well. <laughs> i'm scottish what can i say it's, it's in the dna <laughs> so taylor by the way are we all okay to talk to you today I'm, I'm not sure whether you only talk exclusively to members of the u.s men's national team these days i mean
2: that is going to be the new rule uh starting next week so you all have a few days to get your caps in and then i hope we can make something work from there <laughs> it's going to take me more than a few days i have gotta admit i gotta admit I will say we do this in audio only format. I did record with Sebastian Lejet with uh, the video on. We we didn't record the video component, but uh, it, it's it's a more daunting thing when you know that there's a person looking right back at you. That you have to be sort of really locked in. With you guys, I can just zone out the whole time. But with, with that one, I had to kind of actually listen. Yeah.
3: I mean, I'm not even wearing a shirt right now.
2: <laughs> oh, you're recording this, but for something else, aren't you?
3: This is for OnlyFans. <laughs>
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, Well, Taylor, were you struggling with your hands? um, uh, Always. Ricky Bobby style? (laughs) Always. Dude, I can't,
2: I can't not move my hands, which is not great. It's why I have to have like the floating mic because I hit the table so much when we record that it becomes annoyingly audible. Uh, Yes, I have to keep my hands down and and press together otherwise they're flying all over the place i,
3: I loved how the, th- the thumbnail for that that video that i saw was the, the the picture is you with your hand i think
2: it's above your head at yeah,
3: that,
2: yeah. <laughs> at yeah. Point. that is correct uh, uh and i think i forget what i'm even i'm not even like talking about a header or something like that i think i'm listing and chose to start the list with my hands above my head who knows why
1: yeah um very good, and you can find that episode on the TSS feed as well. Annoyingly audible, by the way, I think is a phrase you use. That's a very good description of myself, I'd say, uh, in general. <laughs> um, why don't we get to some listener questions, though, gents? That's what we convened here today to do. How about it, Taylor? Are you ready for some? You ready? I, I, I am as ready as I will ever be, I think. All right. We've got Kenneth Um, Kenneth Seiden. Um, mm. I think I say his surname wrong every time. Is it Seydon or Seydon? I say Sidon, but I, I I leave it to Graham. Graham can be the deciding vote. You shouldn't leave
2: pronunciation of names up to Scottish people. <laughs> I leave it to Joe. Joe can be the deciding
4: vote. We're going for
1: Sidon, baby, right or there not. There we go. All All right. Right. Joe is the decide and vote on that oh, one, then. There well. we go. Uh, Kenneth, uh, what's the frequency? And so on. I'll ask you. Th- uh, he asks this. When there are club options included in transfers, for example, the loan option to buy, are you with us so far? Has the player already mm-hmm. agreed to new personal terms with the club that has the option, or do they have an ability to reject the option by refusing to agree to a new contract? Do you want to hear that one more time, gents? Or are you on board there? Mm, one more, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. When there are club options included in transfers, exclu- it, excluding or is that no? It's excluding the loan option to buy. I said it wrong first time. Has <laughs> the player already agreed to new personal terms with the club that has the option? Or do they have an ability to reject the option by refusing to agree to a new contract? It's kind of a contract stipulations. How much power does the player have kind of question, Taylor, is it not? It is. We have to go to a, a, a f-
2: an even bigger question first. When you see EX dot, do you write that as excluding? Because I had that example. as an example. Is. So the
1: first time I said example, then I thought, is it excluding? Because I don't <laughs> understand why I'm talking about the words I'm saying anymore.
2: Yeah, so I think the confusing thing for me was club option versus loan option to buy. Because right. club, club option to me is like, like what Man United always insert, where there's like... It's a three-year deal plus one year of a club option. Uh, the Red Bulls tried to do the same thing with Kaku. That did not work quite so well. Um, but I, I took this more of a loan option to buy sort of question. And even there, I think there are nuances, and I think that it can be a couple different things. I think it can be that when a player goes on loan and then the, and there is that option to buy inserted, sometimes... Uh, it, it, well, it is always, as I understand it, the existing contract is in place. So if a player is going from Barcelona to Dortmund, the contract the player has at Dortmund continues to operate. His his wage continues to be his wage, and then it's an agreement on which club play, pays which percentage of that salary. But I think you can have the new contract terms already agreed uh, prior to the player joining. They just don't go into effect until that player signs the contract that contract until the transfer is official. And I think sometimes clubs want to do that to limit expenses if the player takes off. And sometimes they want to do it to protect themselves in case the player does not take off.
3: The, the interesting thing about the whole loan system, so I did I did, a, I did a transfers workshop with the Scottish FA when I worked at Scottish TV a number of years ago. So there was a lot of interesting stuff that I learned from that workshop. And one of the things was that the whole loan system is based on kind of gentlemen's agreements so when you're talking about a player joining us a, a club on loan in, in in terms of registration a loan registration isn't a thing so technically at admin level at registration level a loan is just a transfer um, so a loan followed by a transfer is technically in terms of a registration two transfers so after everything that obviously happened with bosman and player power and so on a player will never have to have the obligation to agree to a transfer so they will always have that option of having that first year of a quote-unquote loan um and then if 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 it's a if it's an agreement between the two clubs that there will be an option at the end of that loan deal to buy them or even if it's an it's an obligation the player will have that that option because at that point they will as you referenced taylor will be negotiating a new contract um
4: at that point so that's my understanding of it anyway Um, Joe, are you as lost in this as I am? Uh, I am lost, but it's helpful for me when I was trying to think about this question and think about transfers in general. It's helpful for me to remember that players in soccer always have, and Graham just mentioned this, I just want to reiterate it, players always have the option to choose to sign for a club or not, right? Personal terms are an important part of any deal getting done. It's it's the clubs agreeing to a figure in terms of money transferring from one team to another team. But then there's also that second part, which is, players having to agree to personal terms. And I think that's something that's a little bit foreign to American sports fans, because if you're playing in a number of other leagues here in the United States, you can wake up to a text that says you've been traded to this team or what? I mean, you don't have nearly as much power as european and and soccer players in most places in the world actually do so it's it's hard at times for me to wrap my head around that because that's foreign to the sports that i grew up watching for the most part but yeah that's that's the principle that i keep coming back to as a player gets to choose so if they've been loaned somewhere and it's time for them to sign a new contract they don't have to sign they can choose whether they want to sign that or not
1: so um where i come from on this question gents is i didn't have a clue what the answer was so i did some research i actually ended up uh contacting two agents of premier league players one of whom got back to me hey. isn't that great yeah um with a very uh, succinct answer to this question uh, he said the player rarely has an option to reject all is predetermined and the player normally can't change these kind of details so that's the professional's opinion on the answer to this question so they can't basically reject the option i suppose they can reject personal terms though can't they this is this is why i'm confused Well, I I think that's where you probably agree
2: to them before the player joins the club on loan so that once that agreement is official, then the terms are already there. You don't have to delay. And I think, again, that's a large part because if that player goes on and scores 40-plus goals in a season – when you then go to negotiate with them, that wage demand is going to be significantly higher because there will probably be other suitors out there. So I think that is why they want to get the business done early so it all is just kind of automatic. I think there can be the wrinkle, like what happened with Avaro Morata, where if a club has... An option to buy inserted as well, then it kind of doesn't matter because that player is going back to their parent club, likely to then be sold for more money later on. Yeah,
3: talking about a player who gets a text in the morning to tell him that he's off somewhere. Alvaro Morata is that player. Oh, yeah. I'm off to Juventus today. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess just going on the back of what you said, Ryan, I, I think that is that sounds right to me in in practice because I can't imagine a player ever joining a club on loan with a an obligation or a, or an option to buy at the end of the loan. And they haven't discussed whether he wants to join permanently or whether the personal terms would be correct. So I guess like you would never have that situation really in, 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 in practice. But just going on, on what I, I know about how, how transfers work and, and, and also like what happened after the Bosman, um, court case, a player will always have the, the, the option to, reject a contract that they haven't signed yet and i don't think you can sign you can't sign two contracts at once because even a pre-contract is a gentleman's agreement you know it's it's actually not a contract um so yeah that's my understanding of it
1: yeah this is all quite raw because we just renegotiated joe's contract with tss and he (laughs) refused the personal terms at first wanted an extra zero
4: on the end um but we got there in the end didn't we joe oh darn right we did darn right harry kane's brother really came through for me (laughs) <laughs> good ref when's All he gonna right. come through for hurricane
1: <laughs> well might do in the long run we'll see about that or might uh, we might even have resolved that issue by the time this podcast hits the airwaves graham who knows oh uh, gents are we happy that we've uh we've covered this one taylor any more on this nope <laughs> i think i said plenty. <laughs> wonderful let's move on thank you very much kenneth for the question once again we've got another one here from michael hastings black what is FC Dallas's Academy doing differently than everybody else? I've got some thoughts here, gents. But Joe, why don't I come to you first? What, what, where do you come at this answer? So
4: my my initial reaction to this question is, what is the FC Dallas Academy doing different? I'd say not a ton. They do some things really, really well. They have a lot of international games that they they send their youth teams to different tournaments and things like that. But they don't necessarily have this different methodology or a lot of, you know, shocking, untested kind of methods that they're using to produce players. The thing that the club in general does really well is just try. They try at their academy. They put resources towards their academy in ways that most teams in MLS just don't. They put a huge emphasis on producing players. And the academy is their club's philosophy in a lot of ways. Like – like with the Red Bulls, their their club and their philosophy is kind of their style of play. With Dallas, it's not necessarily their style of play; it's their youth movement. So the fact that they they actually try at producing players where so many teams I mean, take Minnesota United. Last I checked, they don't have a fully functioning academy. They don't even operate an academy. They rely on on other club programs around the area to actually feed into their senior team and and Dallas takes the opposite approach and they try their academy they spend a bunch of money on it and that is the the main center and and the main purpose of their club I think that's I think that's what differentiates Dallas and their academy compared to a lot of the other ones in MLS.
1: Graham
3: any thoughts on this? I just think one of the one of the things FC Dallas do and I, I think this is a common thing across a lot of clubs that have um academy success is that, that they they give up uh, youngsters an opportunity in 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 the first team and that's that's that seems to be something that a lot of countries and a lot of clubs have an issue with I, I look at some of the big clubs in England Manchester City being a prime example where by all accounts they have one of the the best if not the best youth academy in England and how many players have have you know walked that pathway into the first team you've got Phil Foden and then the other big name that's come from the academy has just signed for Manchester United for 73 million pounds um so i think what fc dallas does it just it just feels like they give their uh, they give their their youth an opportunity and that that, that jumps off on what uh, joe was saying there about how it's it's very much their 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 thing isn't it you know it's fc dallas's thing it's 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 baked into the dna and and the fabric of of that club so a lot of clubs you may have fans who are unhappy that big name signings are not coming in or players that they know but i think there's an acceptance at fc dallas that 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 is their club's thing and their identity
2: and and yeah they benefit from it and in terms of the uniqueness of that approach i think joe is right that in certain ways, there isn't like a ton of, they're not doing specialized training that no one else has thought of. But I think the longevity of the project is a big part yeah. of it. Uh, as I understand it, it dates back to Oscar Pereja kind of taking over as the director of coaching at youth level, I think it was, or like overseeing the entire academy. Maybe even before that, but that seems to be the big part where they then have this plan for a unified approach to scouting and coaching. And they're going to kind of look for players who can fill specific roles that they're going to have. At every single age group so that a left back can then move to the left back starting spot for the the senior team and it won't be this huge jump, at least in terms of the requirements and expectations and responsibilities. And I think the streamlining of that process is so important, not just because it then lets those young players come through and they know here's how I have to develop and here's how good I have to be and what I need to do next in order to make it to that next level. But it also gives FC Dallas a very clear and organized understanding of what they have in terms of their talent level and their depth chart so that if somebody comes in and buys their starting right back in Reggie Cannon, they – or offers to buy – they can look and say, okay, well, we've got this guy coming through and this guy coming through, this person's 16, he would be the fourth choice, but we can make that work. And I think it makes it so that they know exactly where they are in their academy and in their team depth, and then they can more quickly know, okay, we do need to go sign somebody. And I think it facilitates moves happening much more quickly and in a much more organized process, and I think European clubs very much want that to be the case too. Mm. So I think it it streamlines it, and once you have this sort of – dedicated process, this sort of uh, like clearly evidenced process of sign for FC Dallas, become a part of their academy, uh, then you play for their reserve team or you're playing for their U19 team. Maybe you go on loan to North Texas for a little bit, but you can kind of see the progression of, hey, this player did that, and then they made the senior team, and now they're playing in Europe. I want to do that, and it becomes this cycle because then you can replace those young players as they come through with other young players, and it kind of keeps the whole thing moving without having to spend a ton of money the way you would if you were pursuing signings all over the place.
4: It's a cycle. Yeah. Sorry, Ryan. It's a cycle for Dallas in terms of, of players coming through and then going. It's also a cycle for European teams looking for talent in Major League Soccer. In the stage of of development as a club that Dallas is in right now, maybe the biggest thing that they have going for them is their reputation as a selling club or a reputation as a reliable jumping off point for Young, talented players. Weston McKinney coming through that academy and leaving. Chris Richards coming through that academy and going to Bayern Munich through a partnership that the club has with Bayern Munich. So there's an advantage there, something that they do well. Uh, You know, Reggie Cannon going and leaving. And now players like Brian Reynolds that happened in the winter transfer window and Tanner Tessman that happened in the summer window, they're moving too. And I don't think if this was two, three, four years ago that those players would be moving. They're so raw. And they're not fully developed yet at all. Like, if we see Brian Reynolds play a lot under Jose Mourinho this year, I'll be pleasantly surprised, but still surprised. If Tanner Tussman goes now at Venezia in Serie A, if he goes and balls out, I'll be I'll be surprised. Again, pleasantly surprised, but surprised. Teams now are willing to take risks when they sign FC Dallas players because Dallas has proven that they can do this. And not all those players that teams are taking risks on are going to hit, but Dallas has gotten enough successes early on in this project, relatively speaking, that the reputation they have now as a selling club helps them bump up transfer prices and helps them sell more players that maybe other clubs in MLS wouldn't be able to sell at this point.
1: I think we're all essentially hitting the nail on the head here about what uh, FC Dallas' Academy is. And when I came at this question, I was looking at what differentiates them from other MLS um, uh, Academy programs. And the sort two things that I sort of came up with was that they have this, it's culture, it's about culture. Player development is key to the culture of this club and their investment in the homegrown player model. They've been doing it or taking it seriously longer than many others. And that's sort of the outside perception. That's a, that's an issue of reputation as well that you were talking about there, Joe. Uh, and a part of it, I think, also is that they have a, a great territory to pick from in terms of the player pool uh, and in terms of the, the, the demographic that they, they get their players from as well. That plays a part of it. But the main thing that they seem to do to differentiate them is that it's, a real part of the culture of the club, and they, develop, uh, they devote a lot of resources to it. Um, so being I put my proper journalist hat on once again for this, and I actually um, contacted a, a academy director of another MLS club and sort of asked for their thoughts on this. And what they said uh, succinctly once again is that FC Dallas, they play the kids, they don't spend big on DPs, uh, they have sort of less cash to do so. And how they punch above their weight is by investing in that culture of player development. And they also said, the, uh, the academy director said that head coaches have also been academy directors before. Yeah. And just in capital letters, culture, 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 culture is what it's all about. And I started digging into it a little more. And there are some things that they do differently. Um, like, for example, I found out they train in the morning the academy players. Typically in academy players, will they'll, they'll do their programs after school. You'll start at maybe 6pm or something like that. Uh, in Dallas, they train in the morning when the first team works out. So there's, there's some integration there. They're integrating into Dallas's system. They're being treated more like professionals. They are playing alongside the professionals in the same um, facility. Maybe they're quite far away from them, but that's beside the point. Uh, that, that also might have something to do with the heat in Texas, but mainly I think that's a cultural thing. They've made that decision to have them train in the morning and to make it okay with local schools for them to go and do their schooling um, elsewhere. And when we're talking about facilities, by the way, um, apparently they do have a school as well. um, And they do do some education stuff on the complex. And they had the MLS next playoffs um, at the at the complex in Frisco Toyota Stadium uh, back in July. That complex is bigger than some cities. It's got 17 fields. They have 17 fields there, including the main field for the stadium. So that just shows you the investment they're doing. And like local projects and stuff use them as well. But it's all about their academy. It's all about growth. And they have put the resources into that. And um, when I was asking this academy director about if there's anyone who's similar to them in terms of this culture... Um, the one team that came up was Philadelphia, who were also doing very, very well from their academy pro- uh, program as well. And I think I saw a stat that said during 2020 season, the uh, the union came second in minutes for players played, uh, minutes played by players under 22. So it speaks to the success of what they're doing as well. So um, there are things that Dallas are doing differently, but I think it's about culture and it's about the fact that they have this reputation and sort of that snowballs in a way. I think it's sense? interesting because we hear them get criticized a lot or not a
2: lot, but we hear them be criticized for playing in Frisco, which is a decent drive outside of Dallas. Now I'm just assuming that those 17 fields are lined up in a row and you can just walk from <laughs> the stadium along the soccer pitches all the way into downtown Dallas. I think it was a genius plan by them.
1: <laughs> it's the Dallas Metroplex, Taylor. It's it's a, a sprawling area, but you can you can look at the map of Toyota Stadium uh, and the complex, uh, their training complex on, on their website it's kind of an oblong shape. It's not completely like in one line, though. So no, you can't you can't get to um downtown Fine. Dallas by skipping. I thought it fields, was innovative. I thought it was
3: innovative. Do you remember we <laughs> talked about the scouting drones in that one-on-one episode? Yeah, I think Dallas just have the best scouting drones or the biggest scouting drones that can carry the most
1: kids <laughs> to.
2: Well, and 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 maybe they do that extends to other areas because, as I understand it, they also have affiliate programs like all over the place, including Costa Rica, Mexico, I think I read Puerto Rico as well, and then a couple different states, and so they can then pull in players from that sort of catchment area, like I think Ricardo Pepe comes from FC Dallas El Paso, which is a strange name for a team that isn't in a, in Dallas, but then I guess it's not like they're FC Frisco, so it all checks out, uh, but yeah, so when you have those affiliate teams as well, you've got the sort of link there, you've got a ton of feeder programs and you've got a dedicated focus on bringing through those young players and not just bringing through the one or two who maybe rise to the top. I think the overall approach maybe sets them apart for sure.
1: And another thing, which, uh, sorry to interrupt you Taylor, another okay. thing you can't um, ignore is how important it is for a, a, an MLS academy to have a good relationship with the other clubs and the other yeah. academies in the area as well. Because I, I mentioned how, how Dallas has a really good territory which, uh, from which they can take their players. It's not uh, that how great your territory is 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 irrelevant if you don't have a good relationship with those clubs. If you can't do some you know good negotiation and and, and treat them well as well. And having seen that firsthand, how important it is to have good relationships with um with with uh, other clubs, uh, it, it really really matters. And that can be going as far back as your eleven and your twelve and your thirteen year olds and having programs which are mutually beneficial and developing those relationships and making sure that you're not the big MLS team in town who's uh, just. Saying, to pick up all the good players and, and it's about uh you know cooperating with the region as well there's lots to it essentially but fc dallas you do you keep doing you right
2: i like that <laughs> i think that's a good one to end on for sure keep i doing think it.
1: so keep doing you dallas slash frisco uh we're going to be back shortly
0: after these messages this episode is brought to you by michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Total Soccer Show, we have returned with your listener questions. Tyler Kinsella's here, everybody. Tyler asks, how did the Gold Cup shake up your USMNT depth chart? Most importantly, is Jazzy Zardes the current starter for the USMNT at center forward? Uh, Taylor, what do you think? Uh,
2: I I think I would hesitate to say anybody came out of this camp and is the definite starter at any position. I think the person who probably comes closest would be Matt Turner, who's a player who was definitely not my number one candidate before the Gold Cup and and I think is now. Uh, I, I will be... Quoting a few lines from Matt to- Matt Doyle, who wrote a good part about like what we learned, the best and worst things we learned. One of them was that like we can all think Matt Turner is the number one. That doesn't mean Greg Burhalter does. But he had five shutouts in six games, uh, I think six in seven career appearances for the national team, and his passing completion rate was good. Obviously, he makes big saves. So that's a player who I am now much more okay with. Uh, being in that conversation, if not being that number one starter for the United States, that is a player who I think really solidified their role in the team. Uh, and I think Zardes did too, especially with the game against Mexico. Just with, not even with the like the goal scoring production, you you can mock Chelsea Zardes, all you want for that one. But I think he continues to be a player that does what Berhalter asks and does it very well and seems to pick up what's being asked of him really quickly so he can handle multiple assignments. And I think he did a good job of pressing, but then sitting back, of dropping in, but then trying to stretch the defense. And I thought he he did what he always does, which is remind us why he's in that conversation. I don't think he is the starter outright. I think it's probably Josh Sargent and Gyasi Zardes vying for that one. Maybe uh, Jordan P. Fuck in there as well. But Daryl DK is one who I think did the opposite and maybe fell down a little bit. I think he entered camp as like my number one starter, the the number nine for the United States. And I do not have him in that position. I've got a few more, but I don't want to dominate too much. So those are some players who stood out in positive and negative ways for me.
1: All right. Um, Graham, I know Gold Cup was rather difficult to watch yeah. across the pond. <laughs> but uh, Zardes being in the conversation as the starting center forward in 2021, who to have thunk it?
3: I have I've always liked Jassi's edge uh, Jassy Zardes. Like I know he comes in for a lot of uh, criticism his style is maybe slightly unorthodox at times but I I often I the, he, I often kind of um compare him a little bit a, a, a little bit in his in his kind of running style. I I was always a bit of a fan of Danny Welbeck was he when he was at the top of kind of the English game and playing for Manchester United and actually good and and Zardes has always reminded me of Welbeck a little bit and and my concerns with Welbeck and Zardes are similar in that I don't, I, I'm not sure he's going to deliver that many goals. And I was actually going to throw because, as you mentioned I, I didn't watch much of the Gold Cup just because there was too much soccer over the <laughs> summer for me to watch the Gold Cup. But is is this the the one position in this uh, US Men's National Team now that is the biggest priority? You know, it seems like you guys are pretty sorted for. You know, a couple of good goalkeepers now, central midfielders, you know, a couple of good center back options, attacking midfielders slash wingers, wide men. Is this the one position now? Is that why we're, we're getting this question now? Because this is the thing that dominates the agenda with the team selection.
4: Yeah, it's it's the striker position is still a question mark. And a lot of folks were hoping that the Gold Cup would sort that out, myself included. And it did kind of sort it out in that. We learned DK's dropped down a bit, uh, and now it really is, I, Taylor, I agree with you. It's, it's Zardes and Sargent, either 1A, 1B, either way, you flip that. And PFOC maybe in there somewhere. Graham, it's, it's striker and it's left back for me that are the two undecided spots, but it's just way more fun to talk about striker than left back. So, uh, I think that's why that dominates the majority of that conversation. Not
3: for Scottish people.
4: True. <laughs> <Or English. laughs> True. You guys have, uh, you, you want to send somebody over here? Just, uh, yeah. asking for a friend. No, no, we'll keep them. Okay, Thanks. fine, that's fine. <laughs> we need them. Whatever. <laughs> Didn't even want it. Just put put one of them at number nine.
1: Why not?
3: Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're probably not far away from trying that.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, Joe, do you consider your uh, U.S. depth depth chart shaken by the aforementioned tournament?
4: Oh, it's shaken, baby. Uh, I agree with the things Taylor said. Matt Turner's my. This is my depth chart again. Don't know what Berhalter's going to do. It's not super. Useful for us to dissect all the minutiae of that. Turner is my number one goalkeeper. Zardes up into the top two either way at striker. Uh, Miles Robinson is probably my starting right center back next to John Brooks if we're talking about a 4-3-3. He was super impressive. I think he was more impressive at this tournament than Mark McKenzie was in the Nations League tournament. And so until Chris Richards really gets a chance to establish himself with the national team, I think it is Miles Robinson's spot to lose. Uh, James Sands is higher somewhere. He wasn't really even on the depth chart before because we'd never seen him with the national team. James Sands is is higher up at center back and at the number six than he was before this tournament. Shaq Moore is up to number two or number three in my right back depth chart. Behind Desk, but Desk could play left back uh, and, and pretty much level with Cannon, if not slightly above for me. Matthew Hoppy is now in the conversation for World Cup qualifying, which he was not before. At probably fifth in my winger depth chart right now, Paul Areola is somewhere in that same stratosphere. They do very different things, I want to be clear. So it's almost like comparing apples and oranges, but you both put the apples and oranges in the same fruit bowl. So you kind of have fruit, to compare Fruit them. can be compared. Yeah, fruit yeah. Fruit can be compared. <laughs> uh, Jordan Morris, when healthy, is also in that conversation, but he's not healthy right now. Uh, those are Those are the main changes for me from this tournament. A lot of movement, a lot of good movement. We learned a lot of really valuable and positive things from this tournament. And I I honestly didn't think we were going to learn as much as we did.
2: Joe, I'm glad you brought up Matthew Hoppe there because that's one who I had on my list as a player that I remember people saying, like, should he be our number nine? Should he he be the guy who starts for the U.S. after he scores, what, like the the brace or he scores like four goals in his first two appearances for Shaka, and then that number sort of peters out a little bit. But to see him with this team and the way... He seemed to be given a lot of license to move wherever he wanted and to try to find space and try to create, but also just try to cause problems and frustrate. And I think he literally frustrated uh, Mexico a number of different times. He has that moment where he deliberately kicks the ball away while making direct eye contact. It makes me very happy. And I think he has that attitude that you need for World Cup qualifying. And so he is definitely one who is gone way up in my estimation and in my rankings Uh, two other quick little things one is that I keep trying to figure out why I'm so hesitant to say Matt Turner is the number one and I think it's only because goldfish brain being as it is I can't fully remember Zach Steffen playing for the national team like it's it's only been a month or two but like I think I'm a little hesitant to say nope it's definitely Matt Turner just because I don't want there to be the recency bias but I think where I am is it's Matt Turner with the edge heading into World Cup qualifying camp, and then we'll see how they perform. And the final name that we probably have to mention is Kellen Acosta, because yeah. the other, I think Joe is right, center forward number nine is, is a major area for me. Who starts at left back also tells us who starts at right back, and that provides some answers. So I think those are two questionable areas. The other big question mark we had about this team, about this U.S. team, is what happens if Tyler Adams can't play, as he often has not been able to do for the national team, because nobody can do what Tyler Adams does. I really do think he is the most important player for this squad, for this team, and any U.S. team he's in. So then if people can't do exactly what he does, who can do the most to allow the United States to only have to make minimal adjustments to accommodate? And I think we learned that that is Kellen Acosta, that he can do the defensive work, he can cover the ground, he can lead by example, he can conquer a calf a little bit and get in the opponent's heads. but then he can complete good passes when he needs to. He's not overly adventurous but he doesn't just sit between the center backs and i think we got a varied performance from him and in a consistent way that we had not seen and so i definitely come away from this thinking we know who our backup number six is which is not a thing i really thought we would have to be worried about but i definitely was and so now we can focus on a couple of those other areas and i'm hoping that's what greg berhalter is doing now i'm i'm so
1: sorry guys i'm just distracted thinking about my fruit depth chart (laughs) yeah yeah. that's right (laughs) apples bananas Grapes, everything else for me. Oh, any any, any raises on that? That's a bad that take. That is your order such of Such a bad take, Ryan. That is, Ryan. Really?
0: <laughs> that <laughs> costs is so much beauty.
1: Apples and bananas are my most commonly consumed fruit. But that does does that out. mean they're your favorite? Like they're the
4: best ones?
1: Why would I consume them most commonly if oh, they weren't, Oh, Ryan.
4: That is so... Pineapple, pomegranates, yeah, pineapple watermelon... I mean, so many other fruits that are better than the ones you just said. How often are you have in pineapple, Joe? Very often, Ryan. Very often. I'm eating it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, number have you ever one. seen a pineapple?
3: What? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so, when I went on holiday. I mean, my number one fruit
1: is uh, chocolate orange. Uh, uh. And, uh, Graham just deep fries his fruit. Don't ask Graham about yeah. fruit yeah <laughs> i do like raspberry flavored candy you're right oh maybe i would missed miss that one out of the fruit bowl um <laughs> more on on the fruit depth chart later perhaps why don't we move on to another question though from mr drew jordan this is a really really good question that stumped me for quite a while yeah. <laughs> why are soccer trophies silverware i mean obviously it's because they're traditionally made of silver and that's probably because the fa cup was originally silver but why silver instead of gold Gold is typically the metal of higher status, like a gold medal, says Drew. This is very, very true, something I'd never even considered. Why are we giving out second place metal to everybody? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, I love this question. And I'm right there with you that I hadn't really thought about it and just sort of took it at like, yeah, you win silverware. And I think Drew, interestingly, sort of answers his own question, because uh, in doing my research, first of all, I'll say it's not just soccer. Uh, The Stanley Cup is silver. America's Cup for Sailing is silver. The Lombardi Trophy in uh, the NFL, silver. So too is the Indy 500, NBA Championship, um, uh, Commissioner's Trophy in Major League Baseball, Wimbledon U.S. Open, the Open in golf, all of them silver Um, or silver-plated.
1: Yes, sir. Wimbledon's men's trophy looks... Um, Oh, no, it is silver. It's silver gilt. It looks gold, but it's silver. Continue. Exactly. Exactly. So (laughs) I then I did not realize how
2: widespread it was that all of those trophies are silver, that silver is the trophy. And I believe this is the answer that I found uh, from two different websites. And so I have my second source. It dates back to the first (laughs) modern Olympic Games in 1896, when first place was a silver medal. Second place was bronze. Everyone else got a participation award, which... For all of those uh, hacky 90s comics about, like, why are we all getting participation awards all of a sudden? They did it in 1896. It's not a new thing. Uh, But yeah, silver used to be first place. It changed in 1904. But I think a lot of sports kind of kept that idea. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just silver is easier to get and a little bit cheaper, but still looks shiny and pretty. But my argument would be all of those things
1: date back to the first modern Olympics in 1896 wow that's a fantastic answer mine was a bit more practical uh in that gold is nearly twice as heavy as silver and for practical yeah, that's reasons a great answer it's really hard to lift up a solid gold <laughs> trophy um right yes. as opposed to a silver one and i think that, that a lot of Um, You know, there might be some austerity reasons for silver being the traditional metal for um, earlier trophies. But I had a little little look around and there are gold trophies out there. The World Cup, for example, is 18 karat hollow gold. It's hollow because, as I said, it would be pretty hard to lift if it was solid. And it's got a Malachite rock base as well. I mean, and Um, the original one got
2: stolen for being gold. So there you go.
1: Yeah. And uh, Georges Remy was actually um, gold plated sterling silver. There you go. Huh. Uh, he, and I was... he, he the man himself? I would... The Gerard Depardieu version <laughs> of the movie is definitely <laughs> gold-plated, that's for sure. <laughs> Every sense of the word, tete. Um And there are some touches of gold. A gold member would be very pleased by the German Meisterschaller trophy, for example, the plate which has some gold plating on it. Premier League trophy has golden lions and a golden crown on it, but I think it's just plating once again. And as I mentioned it and tried to correct you but was wrong, the Wimbledon trophy in tennis, it looks gold, but it's silver guilt and um, the rosewater dish the um, women's trophy is sterling silver as well so my come I was coming at it that it's practical reasons and austerity reasons that, that have caused that tradition and gold being much much heavier but that Olympic answer is crazy Taylor I love that Graham any uh you can will you see that and raise that answer
3: no, I, I can't. That's a brilliant answer, and I think that's probably true because around the the around the time of the, the 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 Olympics that Taylor's referencing would be when a lot of the kind of tournaments, the ancient tournaments as they're called in in, in football, are, were being created. You know, like the FA Cup and Scottish. Uh, cup were kind of two of the two oldest ones so yeah that probably is the answer i was much more looking along the lines you were ryan of of um, practicality and and price was was a thing that i was looking at so the the scrap metal value of the world cup trophy um is one hundred sixty thousand dollars, and that's just from the the gold plating it's actually quite a small trophy as well it's one of the smallest trophies around so i was thinking to create a golden trophy even a plated one or a hole, or a hollow one, as the World Cup is the size of the Champions League trophy. Uh, not sure even UEFA have that 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 sort of money. Um, the, the Champions League trophy, with it being silver, actually has a scrap metal value of just six thousand dollars, apparently. Um, wow. So yeah. Um, if if you want a a replica Champions League trophy, um, you can probably afford one after a, a little bit of saving. Whereas with the World Cup, yeah, maybe not.
1: Oh, can I can I also add, by the way, uh, getting nerdy science on it, gold is a softer metal, I believe. Um, so if Sergio Ramos drops the golden Champions League trophy off the bus, <laughs> it is getting flattened by the time
4: it goes under the wheel. Uh, Joe, any more on this one? I was just going to say, Ryan, you mentioning that gold is so much heavier than silver. The Champions League trophy is silver, but if Bayern Munich win that thing, I think they need to change it to gold, given that all of their players appear to be absolutely jacked now. I mean, if Alphonso Davies can't (laughs) shoulder press the UCL trophy, he doesn't deserve to have it, really.
1: Oh, we need to do a depth chart of who could lift a golden Champions League trophy. Not
2: apples. We need to do not bananas. The weight weight thing had really not occurred to me, and I look at like Lord Stanley's Cup in the NHL, which is fifteen and a half kilograms. Yeah, if that's gold, it's going to be a lot more, a lot heavier, <laughs> and a lot less fun to try to drink out of when you fill it all the way up with alcohol, which I believe is a tradition. Uh, yeah. And then, Graham, to your point about the timeline, like you're right, because looking at like the Open in golf or America's Cup, both of those made— America's Cup was 1848, I think, the Open in golf, 1873 in Scotland. So I think you're right, then, that you're probably looking at what is more readily available at a better price point than it probably is silver to some degree.
1: And uh, Taylor, To, a, I to think, a large degree, I should say. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Tom Brady is a wonderful athlete, but I think that the Vince Lombardi trophy would be at the bottom of a, of a body of water in Tampa <laughs> by now uh, if it were made of solid gold as well, uh, for weight reasons.
2: It would, but we'd have more artifacts to discover, and I think that's also a positive. The, the sunken gold Super Bowl trophy somewhere in the Tampa Tampa Harbor. Yeah, you could, Let's make it yeah, happen. The, the Buccaneers could
3: market
1: that, you know, pirate yeah. theme. They
2: could, that's they could true. get away with
1: that. Find the booty. Find the booty at the bottom of the whatever body of water they were on in Tampa. And Drunk Tom is your guide. You got to navigate that one, positive and negative as it may be. (laughs) Indeed. Less Tom Brady chat. Let's move on. We're going to have a very quick break and a couple more questions. Drew, thank you very much, by the way. That was a brilliant question. Back shortly. This episode
2: is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham.
0: Total Soccer Show, we are back! And so is Xander Pennington
1: with a question for us. Hearing the idea that Vlatko might not have known exactly how much the Dutch were pressing made me wonder, says Xander. Do soccer teams ever have spotters in the stands or the press box or something to help give the manager a better idea of what's going on from a different angle? Like in American football, even at high school, teams will have some assistant coaches in a box to give the staff a better look at the whole field of action. If not then why not? I've got to admit, um, Joe, this question stumped me because it's a very, very good question. Why don't we have coaches sitting in the stands? Because as far as I can tell, it's not a very common thing if done at all. There's this odd perception in soccer that the bench is the best best place to see the game from. It's where all the coaches and the assistant coaches tend to gather unless they are sent to the stands where they get a better view, which is quite contrary when you think about it. And if you have watched soccer from the sidelines or seen it from the stand 20 rows above, you know that the view is better up
4: there. So, uh, Joe, answer this question fully and succinctly for Sander, please. Yes, this happens. Uh, And it probably happens, Brian, more than you think. It's not often, it's not often a coach. Sometimes it's an assistant coach. It's most often, at least in cases that I know of, it's most often like an opposition analyst. So it's, it's that person's job throughout the week leading up to the game to dive into the film, to help player, to help the coaching staff prepare players and give them some film things to think about and then to talk with the coaching staff about, you know, what to expect from, you know, Burnley on Saturday or whatever the situation is. A lot of times those coaches or those analysts, I should say, will go up and sometimes depending on the level, they'll be in charge of recording those games. They'll have a camera way up at the top of the stands and that'll be the tactical cam that coaches will use to either learn little bits of information during the game or to review film after the game to look at their shape, to look at how they're dealing with uh, pinpointed tactical things that they talked about in the build up to that game. Things like that. I think, and I wasn't able to figure this out for sure. I think Canada... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say this is where it stumped me because
1: I I assumed that there were analysts doing that for post-game analysis and Mm. to watch replays in higher angles. But I thought Xander was getting an in-game instruction, which I don't think is
4: necessarily a thing. Is that right? And maybe, maybe I beat around the bush a little bit too much here. I apologize for that. It is a thing. And maybe it's not as common as it should be, but I'm pretty sure Canada at the Gold Cup had... I don't think it was John Herdman, but one of the assistant coach on their staff had an AirPod in. And my belief is that he was talking and hearing instructions from someone higher up the field doing that. I know Borussia Dortmund in their youth setups did a video about this whole situation. They have someone up there talking into a microphone, talking to the coaching staff on the bench, pointing out different things on an iPad or a tablet that then they can adjust to in-game. So it it definitely does happen. I don't know how common it is to relay those instructions mid-game at elite levels, but I'm—I really am guessing it's a lot more common than we think.
1: I think the AirPod was to listen to the latest Charlie XCX album. By the way, it wasn't construction <laughs> who,
4: who shares a birthday with our Taylor Rockwell? He does. She
1: does indeed. <laughs> We've come full circle. We've come full circle. Taylor, let's bring you in at this point. Any thoughts on this question? Yeah,
2: I think we should be citing Eddie Furlong as sharing a birthday with me, not Charlie XCX. But aside uh, from that uh, thought, I will say I think what we do sometimes see is like with Greg Berhalter and the national team, you'll see him with an iPad sort of sitting out in front of him. And I think what we'll get sometimes is a tactics cam that fans are not uh, privy to, don't have access to. I'm going to guess somebody goes up and sets up a camera, and it is filming uh, lengthwise the pitch, and then you can see that, and you can sort of adapt to it. I think Joe's right that you do have people who will watch from different angles to try to provide insight into what is happening in-game, and my guess would be that that is something where at halftime, uh, a coach if it's Burhalter in this case can go to that that person and say hey I'm seeing this or I feel like we're getting exploited here what are you seeing and maybe those two things sync up with yeah this person's stepping into that space when this person goes here so we should do that and then you sort of have a very quick way to stop a thing that's occurring and I would also guess then to Joe's point about the earpiece that mid-game you can get those little instructions of, hey, they made this substitution and now that right winger is actually playing central midfield, so we need to have this person stay more central. And I think you can get those on-the-fly adjustments, but I think you're not getting big decisions necessarily because I think soccer is just not as decentralized when it comes to the coaching. With American football, you've got offensive coordinator, coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams coach. You've got people who you sort of are – Are delegating responsibility to, and maybe it's the coach who ends up making the final decisions on the big plays or on every play, but more often than not, it's the coordinator who's helping select plays uh, at various points. So I think you're not going to have a coach say, like, okay, like, opposition researcher, go out there and talk to the players for me. But I think it helps inform what the coach wants to do because it all, I think, fundamentally comes to the coach's vision for how he wants the team to
1: set up and play. Graham, uh, your thoughts on this one? I was trying to think of coaches and managers who have expressed their preference for sitting in the stands during games. And I know there are some out there. I was trying to think, I think George Graham used to sometimes sit in the stands. There's some managers definitely maybe from the 90s who did it. They're escaping my memory. But your thoughts on this question, Graham?
3: Yeah, so there are definitely it's definitely happening before with a manager sitting in the standout of choice. But I've actually got two examples of coaches who do this fairly regularly, or one who did in the second half of last season. Um, so Darren Fletcher did this for Manchester United in the second half of last season. He came onto the first team coaching staff in. I want to say January of this year, but wasn't in wasn't in the dugout. And obviously, he's moved into a like more of a front office role with, with recruitment now. But um, so I don't think he'll be doing this next season. But he was frequently in in the stand um, watching Manchester United's game. I'm not entirely clear how he was feeding instructions back to the to the bench. Maybe it was just a case of him going into the dressing room at half-time and kind of um, imparting any wisdom he had. But he was he spoke about this on Sky Sports um, when he was on a Monday Night Football. Not so long ago that he that he was he was doing this. The other one in Scotland who does this quite um kind of famously, I guess, is is Gary McAllister does this for Steven Gerrard. So Gary McAllister has sat on the bench a number of times. He's the assistant coach at Rangers, but it's most common for him to be in the stand to watch the the games from from the stand there. So it's probably more common than than we think it is. Um, the, the, my one question from this was it, why managers themselves don't sit in the stands and delegate out the the touch touchline tasks to first team coaches and assistants that's that's what happens a lot in rugby so if you've ever watched a rugby match um or at least a kind of elite level rugby match the, the, the head coach will be in a, actually a, like a glass box, like a director's box, high up. They've got screens and everything going on there. And then it's up to the coaches to to kind of carry out the instructions on the touchline. So it's, it, it's quite strange to me that that doesn't happen more. The other thing that I, I don't have an answer to is why more dugouts in modern stadiums aren't built a little bit higher. So using Manchester United as another example, that was the only... Modern stadium I could think of where the dugouts are slightly higher that you know Solskjaer when he's sitting in that in that seat, um probably has a better view in that seat than a lot like most other Premier League managers do from the touchline and and, and I'm surprised that. I think those dugouts were probably built in the 90s at Old Trafford. Um, I'm surprised we we don't see more of those because it
1: seems like they would be quite effective. I think the 90s was the last time they built anything at Old Trafford. Graham, C- calling it a modern <laughs> stadium is a is is a, is a is a reach. I would suggest that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent stuff, though. I think that's a really good question as well. And maybe more managers should sit uh, higher up. I can remember when um, well, I, was, I am a Wimbledon fan. And back in the day, Joe Kinnear, who was our manager in the 90s, um, had a touchline ban uh, for a reasonable amount of games. And he'd sit there with like a landline phone all game. And he would have someone else with the landline phone like, with a wire on it. Um, kids, that was a thing that used to happen. Um, talking to a, an assistant in, in the dugout as well. So, And that, to me, seemed like a better system in many ways. So,
2: yeah. I mean, it harkens to the Diego Simeone uh, isolation cube, which is still one of my favorite images of all time <laughs> when it comes to soccer, of him being... A- I think, suspended for a game and being forced to sit up in one of the boxes but had no lights on behind him and was wearing his all-black look. So you just see him sitting in a room by himself with no lights. I hope he was conveying instructions, and I hope he didn't even need an earpiece. He's just that ferocious that he could scream from...
1: Like an elevated position and everyone would hear and respond accordingly. I mean, seeing that silhouette as a player, if you look up and see that, that's enough to motivate me to do better, frankly. (laughs) Um, When Graham mentioned the uh, the rugby coaches being in a glass case, I'm picturing, you know, David Blaine when he was uh, suspended above the Thames in that sort of glass box. Is that what you're referring to, Graham?
3: Yeah, see the thing about the Six Nations is you don't just need to win a rugby match to get the win. Your coach needs to escape the glass box as (laughs) well.
1: Without having McDonald's thrown at him by teenagers all day long. (laughs) Mm. Okay, Um, that was a great question, Xander. Thank you very much. One more for you, gents. David Heineman asks, announcers love to describe a team as chasing shadows on defense. I know what they mean, but I have two questions about this. First, what might cause this, i.e. why is one team able to make others chase shadows? Secondly, if your team has been shadow chasing, what can they do to fix the situation? Joe, when I came about this question, by the way, chasing shadows to be clear... Um, is a a sort of phrase about being out of possession, being unable to keep up with your opponent. Aside is chasing shadows when they're unable to get close to their opponent in the game. That's kind of how the phrase is used. Uh, See any opponent of Manchester City or maybe a a peak Spain team, for example. Joe, my thoughts on the answer to this question are that some teams are better at keeping the ball than others and that's how this happens?
4: Yeah, that's a lot of it, right? You just gave two really good examples of teams (laughs) that make other teams chase shadows and... The commonality between them is that they both pass the ball a ton. They pass the ball quickly, and they pass the ball between the lines. They move off the ball really well. And I think that's to get to the first part, or David's first question, I guess, what might cause uh, a team to make the other chase shadows. It is that that quick ball movement and quick movement off the ball. Little bits of combination play, 3v2s, finding numerical advantages, just to all of the principles of of strong possession play, strong positional play, moving around and interchanging. That's the kind of stuff that causes... The other team to chase shadows and it's really hard to execute it's really hard to actually pull opposing teams out of position and make them step out of their shape and find little gaps and play into those gaps but that's that's definitely how to do it Ryan.
1: taylor if your team's been shadow chasing how can you fix a situation
2: uh, I think you can do a couple of different things. The first would be to just abandon your approach and be much more defensive because then you're not chasing anything. You're sitting in and sort of inviting the opponent to come at you and then you can react. But it gives you a sort of foundation. You can reset. You can be defensive and then build from there instead of trying to chase and leaving space and behind and leaving openings. If that doesn't work, I think you can try to slow things down when you get the ball. Instead of going direct or if you've been trying to play this kind of like high tempo game, if you slow it down, if you keep possession and move it from center back to center back to center back to center back, it slows down the tempo and it makes it harder for your uh, your opponent to play as fast as they want to. But if that doesn't work, I think you can slow things down the other way, which is maybe it takes you five seconds longer to take a throw in. It takes you 10 seconds longer to take a goal kick, start fouling a little bit more, and then standing over the ball and having a conversation with the official about why that wasn't a foul. I think if you can disrupt the way the other team is trying to play, ideally legally, but if not using some conca tactics – that is the other way that I can see that you could sort of stop the team from doing what they want, which makes it harder for them to play, which makes it easier for you then to defend and play your own game. Um,
1: Graham, I think I saw Chasing Shadows support Oasis at the Brixton Academy a few years ago. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this question?
3: <laughs> I was going to ask if it was a Snow Patrol song. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> that sound
1: like it. Chasing
3: sh- yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree with everything Taylor said on how you. The second part of the question is, is for me the the kind of the, the thing that got me thinking most of all. It was the most interesting part of well, What do you do if if you are in that situation? Um, and the other suggestion I would I would add to what Taylor said is um, pressing triggers are your friend if you don't want to or can't do a full press. So basically. Pressing triggers would be if, if, if the opposition has the ball in a, in a certain territorial area of the pitch or a certain player gets the, the ball in a, in a certain situation or scenario, then you would commonly have two or three players, normally from the, the kind of front line, um, pressing high on that player. And, 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 and what that means is you, you're not, you're, you're preserving energy in a sense because the players behind, um, are not, they're not pressing as well, but you're keeping your compact shape um you're you you can not leave any space in behind because obviously then you they'll just uh kind of pass around you and then they've eliminated two or three players from your whole team so it comes with risk but um that's maybe another strategy to to, to use if you find yourself chasing chasing shadows indeed
1: uh gents on this question and all others i find myself not chasing shadows i'm quite satisfied taylor you demand satisfaction are you satisfied right now I do, and it didn't even require a glove slap. So, yes, I feel like I have had satisfaction. Glove slap, baby
4: glove slap. Joe, how about (laughs) you? You good? I I am satisfied with everything but your list of favorite fruits, and no, I will not let that go. (laughs) Okay, so just tell me pineapple is, is is number one on the depth chart, to be clear probably yeah pomegranate watermelons there's so many there's so many great fruits Ryan don't limit yourself man. I do like a mango I mean mean, mango yeah mangoes are coming to the equation get out of here
3: these are all exotic fruits though Joe. I mean I feel like where you live may have a a bearing in the fruits that are available here the fruit that you get in the supermarket is just
4: dirt (laughs) but Ryan doesn't have an excuse like Ryan's lived in both of those realms and he still has come out with a mediocre list
1: (laughs) It's true. I knows what I likes. I knows what I likes, Joe. That's all I know. And I like all three of you. Tay, Tay, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, right back at you,
2: buddy. Right back at your listeners for sending us these questions and anybody in the scouting network. Uh, the 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 site is back up and running. Woo! Send your scouting reports. We will uh, get to them. We will keep adding them uh, as we do listener questions and other episodes. So we want the scouting reports. We love all the
1: questions. Please keep those coming and thank you all for listening. We love them all, indeed, and we love Joe Lowry. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for putting up with me.
1: Oh, come on, Joe. It's a pleasure, and it's a pleasure, <laughs> even though he's probably feeling really grumpy right now. Graham Ruthven. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. You guys cheer me up. Oh, that's what we're here for. Thank you, listener. <laughs> Bye.